welcome to the Sporting History Podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sports History, in association with the Institute of Historical Research. And today I'm talking to two guests who have collaborated on a special issue, special issue of the Society's Journal, Dr. Carol Osborne and Dr. Fiona Skillen. Dr. Carol Osborne was the first woman chair of BSSH from 2011 to 2014 and senior lecturer at Leeds Beckett University on the Sport and Social Sciences programme until 2019, when sadly the course closed. Her research interests broadly turn on sports history and heritage, with a particular interest in women's sports, gender relations in sports and climbing history. Her most recent publications include Longview chapters in the Routledge Handbook of Global Sports on Field Hockey and the Palgrave Handbook of Sports, Politics and Harm on Mountaineering. She is Research Associate with Sporting Heritage CIC and is currently editing another special edition for Sporting History entitled Sporting Heritage Theory and Practice during 2021. Oof. Uh, Dr Fiona Skillen is a Senior Lecturer in History within the Department of Social Science in the Glasgow School for Business and Society at Glasgow Caledonian University in Scotland. Her research interests concern modern history, in particular aspects of sport, gender, health, and changes in popular culture. She is particularly interested in the influence which dominant discourses concerning gender and modernity had on women's sports, and she has published widely in these areas. She has also published on research methods, in particular oral history and the use of archives. Having previously worked in the heritage sector, Fiona also has an interest in research in heritage and tourism, and she is currently developing work in the area of sports heritage. Fiona is a past chair of the British Society of Sport Histories and vice chair of Women's History Scotland. Fiona is currently principal investigator for Bowl Power, a two-year EU commission-funded project which brings together seven EU partners to look at how volunteering in sport and arts organisations can contribute to youth interaction, integration and empowerment. And as I said, they're both here to discuss the latest special issue of Sporting History, which is titled Women in Sports History, The More Things Change, The More They Stay the Same. I understand that this special issue is a revisiting of the subject of a previous special issue of 2010. Uh, can you explain the origins of that original project? What was, uh, what was your motivation for that project? So my, my recollection of that was that at the time, Fiona and I were both on the executive committee of the BSSH. I was the secretary at the time, because this is a, it's around 2009, and Fiona was the postgraduate representative, I think, at yes, that time. There was. And the person responsible for initiating that special edition, I believe I'm right in saying, was Professor Dill Porter, who obviously saw myself and Fiona on the exec. He knew about the research that we were doing. I'd worked with Dill. Um, in the history department at the University of Worcester. So he knew a bit about my research on gender and mountaineering. And obviously he met myself and Fiona as well on the exec. And he said, what a great idea it would be to have us edit a special edition of Sport in History. Because at the time he was, um, I think one of the, he was, he was on editing the journal. So really, it was down to Dill Porter that this ha that, that first one happened. 
And were you the first two women to be on the exec of the BSSH? No, we we weren't the first. Um, there, there had been a, a couple before us, um, but but obviously Carol was the first chair, mm-hmm. um, and then I was her vice chair, so I then went on to become chair as well. So we were, we were the first two female uh, chairs of BSSH. So ground groundbreaking slightly in that way, I guess. Yeah, and, and when you when you had that call from Dill to to uh, to put the special issue together, was it kind of like uh, the Magnificent Seven or something? You went. <laughs> around rounding up uh, all of the female scholars out there the women scholars no it really wasn't we didn't have a kind of set idea of who would participate or even what topics we wanted to cover we put out a a general call for papers um because again you know at that time there weren't a huge number of people working in this area and I think that's you know part of the reason that we ended up revisiting this 10 years later was because we had a sense that things had changed and there was a lot more activity. Um, so we we very much sort of threw the net far and wide. And as a result, you know, we got papers that that looked at, um, at Britain, but also at European case studies and American case studies. So it was really broad um, in terms of, of the content and a mixture again of established researchers and kind of early career researchers and PhD students as well involved in that process so it was, it was really exciting pulling it together and seeing all these different um, perspectives and case studies. And um, so so that was 2010 and now you've been looking at the, the sort of the state of play in 2020 now and I read your introduction and one of the things that you were talking about was the way in which um, women's history more generally um, doesn't necessarily regard um, women's sport history as being kind of central to to the history of women I mean is that something yeah uh, I think I think that's fair to say and that's something you know we talked about in, in that first edition as well that that really um, women were missing from sort of sports history narratives or where they where they were featured they had sort of been parachuted in and there was sort of an addendum or you know a, a side paragraph or one chapter they really weren't embedded throughout these big um, sort of master narratives of sports history and the same is true I think of, of women's history as well that actually sport and leisure to a, a lesser extent has kind of been overlooked um, by a lot of the, the sort of big um, uh, uh, case studies and, and uh, big big studies of women's lives and so that's something that hasn't I don't think substantially changed in the last 10 years I think it has in terms of sports history and I think hopefully we've demonstrated that in our discussion there's still a way to go, certainly, um, but I don't think that's something that has substantially changed in mainstream history or within women's history, um, that sport has taken on the, the rightful place that we both think it, it should. Um, I don't know if, Carol, do you want to add to that? Well, I mean, I, I mean you've really said it, Fiona, but, I, you know, I'd, one of the great puzzles to me is that we did do the 2015 special uh, like a forum for women's history review yeah and it's really interesting to me that that seems to almost get passed over even by sports historians yeah that and and you know when when i think about uh, that as a special you know well all, all of all of these special editions contain in my view really cracking articles you know brilliant pieces of research and that that one in uh, Women's History Review, I mean, I don't know, hmm, I, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm not a person who gets too hung up on things like metrics and 
how many people have read something because to me, you know, if I'm doing something, I do it because I want to do it and I, you know, I love doing it and I like doing the editing and facilitating the research. But I don't know, if, Fiona, you might, I, I don't know what the, uh, what the views are even on the introduction that we wrote for the 2015 um, forum. But I mean, that was, that was our kind of like um, entree into mainstream women's history, if you like. But I, I never got the sense that we had positive feedback from that really, not from the mainstream. Yeah. I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think if you were looking at it purely from a kind of how many people have read this, according to, and I'm looking this up right now, I don't actually know this um, off the top of my head. Um, we've got almost 2,000 people have read that for Women's History Review. Really? And, yeah, and actually the special issue in 2010 for Sport and History, we have, I think it's just over 2,000 views on, on that. But what the, interestingly, we're cited much more for sport and history. And I think that's another reason we were asked to kind of think about revisiting this um, this year is because that consistently in the last 10 years, our introduction for that special or one of the articles from that special has always been in the top 10 of sport and history. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a market and a, an interest there in women's sports history. And I think mm -hmm. it's quite interesting if you look at it, you know, if you do look at it purely in a numbers, uh, a numbers um, perspective, which, I'm not advocating you do, <laughs> but but again that main that the kind that that entry into the into the the mainstream the interest that if you you know if you think about it you know June Purvis is the editor of women's uh, women's history review you know somebody right at the forefront of women's history and you know uh, moving the discipline forward so I you know I think that you know for me I think that was that was quite an important um, moment for us, I think, in terms of um, getting that platform, if you like. And again, I should say, I, I, I recall that that was, um, we were facilitated there by Matt Taylor, yeah. <laughs> um, who knows June Purvis, I think, fairly well. And I think, you know, one of, one of the things that this flags up for me, in terms, you know, we, we had Dill Porter, who was giving us support you know, for that 2010 mm. edition. And then, you know, Matt, who's obviously very sensitive to, um, you know, to developments in women's history, of course, he's in, he's in the most recent uh, special writing with, with Raph Nicholson. Um, you know, these are, these are what you'd call allies. You know, mm. we think about men as allies for yeah. women working in all sorts of realms of activity, but certainly in sports history. Speaking from a personal point of view, you know, I, I feel that I've benefited from having male allies at particularly important moments in time. Yeah. Um, and, and that's helped. And, and, and we mentioned that in the forum as well, that BSSH itself, um, I know it has its critics in terms of some people would say, well, you know, it hasn't done enough to promote women, you know, and, and you could... You know, I can see those arguments, but at the same time, I think without the SSH as well, the journal and those male allies, I'm not saying yeah. we wouldn't have managed to do anything, but it wouldn't have quite been the same platform, yeah. I would argue. Does, does it worry you that, for example, with the special issue that you did, um, sorry, for the Women's um, History Journal, that they might say, okay, we've done our sports issue now, and 
there's no follow-up because I, I don't think that that's just particular to women's history I think that's also particular to sports history in general is that you might get a, yeah. a journal that dedicates an issue to sport and then you won't see another sport history article in that journal again yeah I, I would agree I think I think that's right it is you know generally an issue with, with sports history across um mm. across the board looking at you know looking at mainstream and where we fit but what I would hope is that you know that kind of slow drip effect that if we're all doing these special issues all over the place in mainstream history that eventually that subconscious um understanding of, of sports history and where it fits you know that 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 switches and suddenly it's not um, it's not unusual. It doesn't have to be confined to a special issue, and that they're quite welcome to, you know, to to just individual articles being being submitted. Yeah, um, that, that's the hope. Because this is something I was talking to with Kai Schiller, who's the current editor of Sporting History, and he's saying that actually submissions to the journal are very very healthy at the moment. And I don't want to discourage anybody from submitting yeah. articles to the journal because, of course, it's uh, we um, it needs um, it needs product. But he was yeah. saying that we need to push ourselves more to, to submit to other journals as well. And I mean, have you had any experience of that? I mean, what's your strategy when you're thinking about where you're going to place articles? Do you? I think it, for me, it very much depends on, you know, I think with it with anything is what's the topic and who's the audience, you know, and trying to make sure that you've got that that match. You don't want to mismatch. You're setting yourself up for failure there. Um, so, but I mean, I'm as guilty as anyone for not really pushing mainstream um, history journals, you know, not pushing my work in their direction. I do, I guess, play it a little bit safe and tend to go for the sports history journals, not just the British, you know, obviously the international. I'm, I'm, I'm an editor for the International Journal of, of History of Sports, so um, I get a plug in there for them, but, you know, and the American one as well. So um, I, that's where I do tend to target my work. So, yeah, I, I and unless it's I've been asked it's a special issue or there's something come up that someone says you know you really should think about this this journal um so I guess I'm as guilty as the next person and and that's something I should should work on well it's not this you shouldn't feel guilty it's not <laughs> um but uh, how about you Carol you... well you know I'm I'm just thinking that in fact you know but I think we do mention it in the in the intro that um I don't know, I think there's an argument almost to say, well, you know, sports sports history now, the journals, those journals are beginning to show impact. Yeah, definitely. And why wouldn't why wouldn't you put your sports history and, and if that's where people are, are gonna go and look for sports history, because that's the topic, you know, that's yeah. the discipline, then I don't you know, I'm beginning to see an argument to say, well, really you know do we really need to go and go into them into you know we're calling these mainstream journals mm. well aren't sports journals mainstream aren't we becoming mainstream sport is yeah. mainstream i think that's a great so, yeah it's a great point um, we, yeah. Yeah. so we'll take it back to the issue that you've done now so um you mentioned that matt taylor has uh, collaborated on an article with uh raf nicholson um what are they talking about there that, that article, that's the, I mean, that's an important contribution to the existing historiography because obviously Matt in his own right has written the book about sport in the Second World War, but in this one it's the collaboration um, with Raf um, on, you know, obviously women and their experiences during the Second World War. And um, what's really incredible about that article is the scope in terms of the 
different areas of sporting activity that it's it's covering really you know um, from women in the services women on the home front women in club contexts you know and 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 of course the other thing I mean it's it's masterly because the range of sources that they incorporate yeah. into that analysis I mean I mean well actually you could say that about all the journals it just you know, when you're editing that stuff and you're seeing those mm. articles come in and you're seeing the scope of the sources. So, you know, with Matt and Raff, it's the mass observation. It's vignettes yeah. from memoirs. It's a bit of oral history in there. You know, it's it's um, documentary sources. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling, really. And, yeah. I mean, for me, I, lo- I love those kinds of articles that do that, what I call that big-picture work. And I think I like them so much because you know just how much trawling and work mm. people have put into those yeah. to make these, you know, these apparently, you know, quite open statements about stuff. But, you know, underneath that is so much primary research yeah. that enables them to make that big picture kind of analysis. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm... It just it just makes me feel so enthusiastic seeing something like that, and that's so and it's and we were so lucky to get that because that was that's a groundbreaking article. Yeah, I love the it. Really and we were really lucky to get that. Yeah. Um, what else have you got in there, uh, Fiona? So we have we have a huge, quite a huge range of things actually, and that that was another thing that was really exciting about editing this um, special, because we've got things that look at women's you know participation. Um, So, you know, we've got Karen Fraser's article in there about the history of women's football in Scotland. Um, We've got Neil Carter's article there about cycling and women in interwar Britain. We've got uh, interwar cricket from Adam McKay. Um, We've got uh, Katie Taylor's uh, work on American football players. Again, some some really groundbreaking stuff from all of those uh, contributors. But we also have stuff about you know, behind the scenes. So how were women involved in men's sport? So we've got a great article there from Victoria Dawson looking at rugby in Liverpool and, you know, women's roles there, both as investors and organisers and, and, and shirt washer, washers and, you know, all the various roles that they had within that context. Um, and then we've got Gary James's article, which is all about, you know, how do you retrieve the history um, the hidden history of women's sport and he's you know using the case study of Manchester City and talking a lot about the methods that he used in terms of oral history and working with a heritage organization so you know we covered quite a, a broad range of perspectives but I think that that was it was not a deliberate strategy that we set out with um, that was just you know what what we ended up with and and I think actually it works really really well because I think it really does give us a snapshot of the current state of the subject at the moment that we are all working in these diverse areas and it's really exciting the stuff that's coming through. That's what I like about it because um, it's going beyond just the usual, oh, you know, I mean, obviously football and, and things like that are in there, but there's there's mm. like American football. I'm going to be so interested to read that article because I don't know anything about American football anyway. And then the fact that women were involved in it in like such a long time ago. Um, just fascinates me and um, I'm looking forward to KT will also be giving a paper for us um, about that I think in 2021 for the uh, for the sport and leisure history seminar but you mentioned the sort of sporting heritage I mean um, what's the relationship between sporting heritage and sports historians I mean obviously there's been quite a 
a lot of research using museums and museum archives recently. I'm thinking of Lisa Taylor and Lydia Furs. Um, and you've worked also in the sporting heritage, well, both of you have worked in the sporting yeah. heritage sector, haven't you? So can you talk a bit more about that relationship? Um, Carol, do you want do you want to come in with this one? Because I know you've got that, you've got your role with sporting heritage. Yeah, I suppose, well, um, yeah, well, perhaps you can talk, you'll be able to talk a bit more about the collaborative PhDs because yeah. of your one uh, with the Golf Museum. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, the, um, I think the, I think for the heritage organisations, that, that kind of, um, I think it, I think the research, the academic researchers help to animate the collections that perhaps have been a little bit neglected in the past and that kind of opportunity to form that kind of ac academic research relationship really that's what it does it, it it brings that chance to to bring those collections to life in a way where otherwise they may not have been used at all you know or they they could literally be sat there just waiting for someone to to come along and discover them if you like so in a way it's a bit it it makes a more purposive use mm. of those uh collections um but i think in terms of you know that question about you know what why the sporting heritage work is is so important um is perhaps and i'm, I'm thinking more now in the future that sporting heritage as an organization can perhaps help museums and small sports collections to begin to do their own research and not just necessarily rely on academic researchers yeah. to do that job as well so it's a bit so sporting heritage is really double-edged i think in terms of you know there's two sides of the coin there's that what we'd understand as academic research um, all the uses we might put that to as academics. Um, but at the same time, I think sporting heritage is keen to be able to facilitate the people who keep those collections, you know, to help them to, to do their own research for their own purposes. Yeah. Not necessarily always academics doing it. Mm. And I think, that's, I think that's two sides of it. And I think that both of those sides have their importance and their value. And I think also Sporting Heritage as an organisation have really pushed the agenda forward as well in terms of, of women's sports history, um, because, you know, they've they had um, the AHRC um, a collaborative doctoral partnerships yeah. that they were coordinating. And those were fantastic. I mean, they're, they're an absolutely brilliant opportunity to get a student into a, a museum, a heritage setting to work with the museum to use their archive material or to collect more archive material, you know, a sort of more targeted approach um, and to have an academic output, but also to have those experiences. So the, the student is coming out with, um, you know, a wide range of experiences and therefore potentially a wide, um, wider employment opportunities when they're finished. The, in the museum, the heritage institution is, is is getting somebody there to work with and to to um, to develop their knowledge and understanding of their collections as well, 
and from a, a, a museum a, a university perspective as well it's great because you're getting to build up those networks with the heritage sector and develop projects so not just the PhD but develop other projects that actually engage with the community and I think that's fundamental as well as academics that we need to be um, thinking about you know how do we get our work out there to the public and to engage the public and to change policy and so forth and I think it's something we talk about in that introduction to this, this special um, you know the importance of engaging with the public and one way of doing that is through the heritage uh, organizations and through supporting heritage itself and then the other way is obviously through other um, uh, other organizations like Playing Pasts for example you know we're both big fans of the work that they do and the way that that can speak to um, non-academics as well as academics. Yeah and um, one, one... Can, I, can I just... Oh sorry go on. sorry Karen. Sorry, can I just uh, just pick it up? Actually, Fiona's triggered me there. Um, the, the, a couple of points, really, in terms of sort of like the one of the things about these sporting heritage IHRC collaborative PhDs. So bearing in mind, you know, sporting heritage held those funding opportunities. You know, I I sort of wonder uh, what academic departments would have actually been willing to have stepped up and funded sports yeah. history PhDs. You know, I've, I've, just come, I've just come out of an institution that fundamentally doesn't care about sports history. You know, Carnegie School of Sport, let's say, it's a, it's a massive, mm. um, uh, it's got a really big history and heritage itself, but it doesn't have a sports historian. And so you can say, you know, and, and there's, not, there's not a huge amount of support in I would say in generic um, social sciences programs for shoring up sporting yeah. history and so you, you've got to ask that critical question you know where would have that where would that funding have come from for these PhDs to have happened and and it's not just one or two yeah. it's quite a number of PhDs that have come out of that that achievement that you know of getting of them securing that funding so you know, there, there's that critical point um, to be made. And, and just going back to the point that Fiona was saying about playing pasts, you know, they, they've, um, oh, is he Mark? Mark Evans, I think it is. Mark Evans, this, I think he's, he's, uh, he's connected to the Hockey Museum. So he's, he's done quite, a, he's written quite a few articles for playing pasts. And that's a classic example of somebody who volunteers within a heritage collection. He's, you know, he, he's not doing a PhD, but he's absolutely dedicated to doing research on hockey history. And, you know, he's getting the opportunity to, um, you know, write about that, that sporting heritage through the platform of playing past. So you can kind of see that sporting heritage has done quite a lot of work really. And similarly, a platform like playing past, which is kind of a, bridge and I think you know Fiona and I said this in the intro playing passes that bridge between the academic and that perhaps that that more um, practically applied kind of heritage work that gets done by volunteers you know amazing yeah, and you touched on this already but um you know given the paucity of sort of coverage of women's sport in the media compared to men's historically and even in the present day I mean, how valuable is oral history in exploring the experience of women in the 20th century? I mean, you mentioned Gary James's work, but does that apply across the board? 
I, I would say it does. I think oral history is is vital to this kind of um, historical research because, you know, there are limited sources for women's sports history. It's very difficult to, to find them, to locate them, um, if they do exist. And so oral history kind of is another way of, of tapping into those experiences. And obviously the kinds of records that are kept are very often, you know, kind of nuts and bolts stuff of who played who and when and what the final score was and those sorts of things and that doesn't really tell us a great deal about what it was like playing as part of a team and picking up an injury and um, the relationships that are formed with the friendships and things that are, that are formed and the social side that goes along with those those um, types of participation and so oral history really um, kind of opens that that window on that that level of experience and so I think it's really fundamental with the types of sports history that I do and I think with a lot of other people in, in this area. Um, I don't know if Carol, would you agree? She knows what I'm going to say. Well, you know, because obviously, you you know, we, we've co-written an article together about oral history and, and you know, as a, you know, and if, and if, if you did women's history back in the Back in the dark ages, when I did it, when I was at university, you know, you know, oral history was absolutely the thing to move yeah. not just history forward, but social sciences forward. You know, interviewing and and that as a as a kind of methodology and the um, you know women's voices and all that. And and yes, um, you can't deny the importance of it because, as Fiona says, you know, that's how you how you get the texture in history equally you might say that that uh men's history you know men's history no one will see me do inverted commas there men's men's sports <laughs> history perhaps they should focus a bit more on oral history yeah. as well and, and not just kind of it kind of feels like it's beginning to get pigeonholed as a women's methodology mm. but, but clearly not so I don't know, yeah. Jeff. What do you think about that? <laughs> I think I think that's really interesting, actually, because I, I I had two thoughts while you were talking there. And the first one was like um, my partner Denise. Um, she likes running, and when she was when she was a teenager, she she was in a running group or running club, I should say, in the park. But that club was probably run by men. I would assume. Sort of. I don't want to reveal how old she is, but it was a while ago. <laughs> and she herself um, remembers it with a lot of fondness, but she doesn't mm. see it as having been kind of, I don't want to talk for her, but, you know, it was significant to her, but it wasn't significant, you know, as a thing. Um, yeah. But when I was thinking about that, I was thinking, no, actually, she was a, a, a woman um, from an ethnic minority background who was taking part in something which, maybe wouldn't have been common for people of her background to take part in at that time in in this part of London mm. and so her voice would be quite interesting she might provide a contrasting voice with other members mm -hmm. of that club at that mm -hmm. time you know and so I think that's what you're talking mm. about isn't it is when you're talking about sort of recovering sort of women's voices and history but then like that thing about men's history I think that's really interesting because something that was on my mind during our conference I think was like just you don't often read about the experience of like being in a sports club or something like that so I've been in a I've been in a football team for a long time yeah. um, even though it's folded we're still we still think of ourselves as being in the same team um, 
and I I don't remember anybody sort of writing about that academically. I could be wrong because my ignorance of of sports history is enormous. Um, but that kind of emotional attachment that you have to being yeah. a club or in a society, um, which I think you're saying that people kind of think about, well, women do that, but um, maybe men should start thinking about, well, we do that as well. It's just maybe we yeah. don't like to talk about it as much. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Is it? But the other, I mean, the other concern as well. Yeah. The other concern that um, sort of Fiona and I mooted when we were putting our heads together with for the introduction was that this idea of the kind of focus on the more recent past, mm. contemporary mm. sports history. Ah, what happened? What's what's happening to all the stuff way back that really, you know, we've barely scratched the surface. Yeah. Probably of women's sports history in the deeper past yeah and we're and we're already sort of saying oh you know we, we must do the more recent past and of course we do need to do that because otherwise we're going to lose those voices but again it goes back to the funding you know who who's who's gonna who's gonna who's gonna fund you know i don't know um you know research into the you know mid-19th century women's archery let's say um because come on carol tell us what the impact's going to be for that yeah, yeah that yeah. bothers me that bothers me yeah a lot yeah um, martin johns has written on arch you know toxof yeah. toxophily is it yeah um yeah. He's, he did a really good article on that but you know i can't really think of too many other articles and of course archery was a really important sport mm. for women one of the things when I was looking through because I hadn't actually managed to read the special edition yet I'm waiting for the print copy to come through my letterbox but um, you've got a lot of men writing about women's sport there but one of the things I was wondering was do we need more women writing about men's sport because um, I don't know I mean I was trying to think of like uh, you know the big books of sports history there's not, mm. not so many that have been written um, by women, by female scholars, um, but also articles by women talking about men's sport, because it worries me that maybe women are just said, well, you're just interested in women. You don't need to do anything else. Is that, am I being too broad brush there or is that something? I think that's true of certainly of the British picture. I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case if you look at the United States or um Australia, for example, I think there are a lot more women working in, in men's sports, if you want to characterise it in that way. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's, you know, it's something that, that I don't think either of us is particularly um, uh, concerned with, you know, your gender dictating what you research. I don't think that that should be an issue. Um, if, if women want to research men's, then they should. And if men want to research women's, then of course they should as well. And, and again, that's, you know, you can see that in this special issue that we we didn't just go with female um, scholars, although actually um, we did in the, the first uh, special yeah, issue that we did, it was all female scholars. And that wasn't, um, again, that wasn't really by design. That was just um, kind of how, uh, what, what came in from the call for papers. So um, we, didn't we have one, we did have an article by, did we not have one? Oh, we did, Bernal Farrell. You're right. We did um, have one. Sorry. Yeah, we did have we did yeah. have have one. I think it 
in the second loaf, Fiona, you were right in saying that the, in the second one, I think it was it was all female researchers. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think the other the other thing that was quite interesting, if I just go sort of back to the previous question, is when you mentioned the media. Mm. And I think that that was something that we got quite kind of hung up on when we were writing this introduction was where are women in the media? You know, where, where are sports women and where are their stories in the media? And this kind of feeling that had we been writing our introduction to this special a year ago, mm. we would probably have written a very different introduction. Because I think at that point, and I don't want to speak for you, Carol, here. Um, so, you know, chip in here if, if you disagree. But I think at that point we were feeling kind of hopeful that things had changed in women's sport. And of course, over the years, we've had little kind of glimmers of hope around, you know, the Olympics and things where we thought, oh, yes, the discourse is changing. Women are taking, uh, people are taking women's sport seriously. And then it's kind of died off again. But it's it felt like there was a momentum that things were changing um, for the better and that they were starting to get a little bit more coverage and a little bit more sponsorship and so forth. And then COVID hit. And of course, sport was thrown into disarray. And what, what seems to have happened is that women's experiences and voices have disappeared from public discussion again. And the fixation is back to men's sport and predominantly things like football and the, the kind of high earning sports. And so the introduction that we wrote, we talked about that and we talked about you know, the challenges that that will then give historians in the future when they're looking back to kind of trace um, women's sport and this kind of schism that essentially happens. Um, if you're just looking at, at the media and why does that happen and the challenges that that's going to give them. Um, but I think it's quite interesting that we're, you know, we were writing this in the middle of the pandemic and it really did influence what we were, what we were discussing quite substantially. I was reading an article in the Financial Times yesterday that somebody had written about, um, I'm, I'm being very academic-y now, I suppose, but um, about sort of precariousness in academic positions at the moment and about the way in which it affects um, women in particular um, but I was but then it was kind of making me think about actually it might chime with what you've just said about the way in which um, women are always disenfranchised compared to men at times of crisis um, do you uh, do you see any parallels between the experience of women in sport historically and the experience of women in academia historically yeah there, there is a bit in that isn't there if you think about the parallels in sport and academia this idea about you know women in leadership positions you know and the same might be said um you know for for uh, black asian and ethnic groups you know this and they, these are kind of really it, it's a topical debate isn't it it's about you know you you've got to get representation um in in, in positions where people have some authority and can make decisions and can give leadership and be seen to be doing that as well, you know, that, and I know it's a cliche, but you know, you, you've, got, you've, um, you've got to see it to be it, that, that kind yeah. of thing. And, and so I suppose if there was a, if I was going to draw a parallel, I would say that really it, it sits in that debate of, you know, obviously, um, perhaps facilitating people, encouraging people to have the confidence. And that's mm. the other thing, to have the confidence to perhaps go for those positions where they might have a bit more decision-making ability. Mm. Yeah. Because I think there's a lot tied up in that as well for perhaps for women and, and perhaps for those populations that haven't 
traditionally yeah. had those opportunities or seen other other people, you know, from the same populations in those positions where they can make decisions or have any, you know, have power effectively because yeah. that's what it's about. Yeah. You know, it's it's yeah. about it's about power, isn't it? And who's who's making the decisions? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess you're also kind of making a statement about what you think is important as well by who is in those roles. And, and also, you know, what, what is being researched. So, you know, again, coming back to the special, we make that point that we are very conscious that this special is predominantly looking at white middle class women's experiences. Um, and I think it is, it typifies what is being researched at the moment in Britain, but that's something that hopefully if we do another special in another 10 years, um, heaven forbid, we'll, we'll be um, very old by that point. But yeah, if we were to do another special, we would hope that there would not be this kind of, that that would be the only experience that was being represented. You know, we're very aware that this is not an ideal, um, an ideal situation. But, but yeah, it is, it is interesting, though, because one of the things that absolutely, you know, it, it gave me pause for thought when um, when we were, we, we were kind of reflecting on the amount of time that women have been protesting, if you like, mm -hmm. about the lack of representation of women in sport. You know, mm -hmm. and it's um, and what kicks that off for me was that article that um ah uh, help 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 um oh jordan matthews wrote for sporting hits in sporting history mm -hmm. and it was about you know the brighton conference yeah. you know it's the early 1980s when women first you know a critical mass of women started to speak about getting representation sport and um, you know higher profile for women in sport equality for women in sport 40 year 40 years and we're still yeah. and we are still in a position where you know there aren't enough women in leadership positions yeah. to, to make those you know to make decisions um important decisions you know to be able to dis distribute resources to uh, other women uh, from all populations you know, 40 odd years, people have been, academics have been writing about representation of women in sport in the media. And you know what? It's not that much better. No. 40, and, and that is, and we do make that point in the, and, in the intro. So. And that, I mean, that's essentially yeah. why, why we settled on the title that we did. So yeah. some people might be a bit kind of what, what sort of an odd um, an odd phraseology or whatever. But, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, I think really sums it up because and it, it sums up, I think, the whole concept of women's sport. You know, it's not one of linear progression. You know, it is two steps forward, one step back very often. Mm -hmm. And again, I think, as Carol has said, you know, we can see that that change in the last 40 years has been incredibly slow in many ways. And yet people are. In the media saying isn't it great this, that things have substantially changed for women's sport you know it's great we've got all these celebrities celebrity you know athletes and so forth and you know that some of them have got funding and are able to go professional and all the rest of it and you're like yeah but fundamentally for the majority of people things have not changed mm -hmm. and then something like covid happens and suddenly you know the rug is pulled from under us <laughs> and and we're kind of going back again and so that is very symptomatic of women's sports history. I think that we're continually kind of fighting to get to get progress, um, and so it was a very very conscious choice choosing that that title for the special issue. I think that's pr probably a pretty good um, place to wrap up. So let's go back to the beginning with the uh, with the special issue there. Um, 
I want to thank you both for uh, giving up your afternoon today to, uh, to talk to us. And uh, it's been a really great discussion. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been lovely to talk. You mean, you mean that's it now, Jeff, is it? Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope I hope you enjoy you know reading the special, and that everybody else enjoys reading it as well. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and and we'll come back for a part two. We'll do a Q and A if you like. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should tell the people out there that the special issue is available now on the Taylor and Francis website, and it should be arriving. Um, into people's houses fairly soon and I'll put the details um, in the blurb for this podcast uh, but for now from all of us it's goodbye